So let me read it. It comes from Luke 11, verses 5 to 13. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will, uh, Has a friend, and will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. Cannot, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, your, will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, so before I say anything, there's a short 90-second video, kind of an instructional sort of video, on prayer. It sounds strange, but bear with me. The team will put that up for us now. Greg, would you like to say grace? Oh, uh, well, uh, Greg's Jewish dad. You know that. You're telling me the Jews don't pray, honey? Unless you have some objection. No, 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 no. No, I'd love to. Pam, come on. It's not like I'm a rabbi or something. <laughs> I can say grace in many a dinner table. Oh, dear God, thank you. You are such a good God to us, a, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh, sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day day by day by day oh dear lord three things we pray to love thee more dearly to see thee more clearly to follow thee more nearly day by day by day amen amen oh greg that was lovely thank you greg that was interesting too that instructional <laughs> but i put that up there not just to get it because it's, it's a funny clip but to show how prayer is not something that is natural to us anymore. Prayer is something that is not intuitive. And I remember being a brand new Christian and somebody actually saying to me, you pray funny. Because I didn't know what I was doing. You see, my son even finds it funny. <laughs> but, you know, it isn't intuitive. And the reason that Greg up there is having difficulty, that's really awkward, isn't it, to watch? Um, the reason he's having such trouble is that prayer is a relational act in the Bible. It's always referred to as being relational. So as a result, it's not a surprise that Greg, who is 
a secular Jew in the, in the movie. Well, in real life too, probably Ben Stiller. Um, it's, it's understandable. He doesn't know how to speak to him. If I meet a stranger, my first conversation with a stranger might be awkward until I get to know them. And so when the disciples come, and, and Luke 11 is a, is, is a discourse on prayer. So when the disciples come and say, teach us how to pray, Jesus goes into chapter 11, and he gives this, this, this teaching. And he starts with the Lord's Prayer, which we didn't read. That was the first four verses of chapter 11. And in there, he shows you the words to pray. Here are the words you use. But now with the parable and into his little explanation, we have instead something else being shown to us. We're being shown what is the source of prayer, what is the, uh, the manner of prayer, the style, and then what is the power for prayer. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this parable and ask those questions. What does it tell us about prayer? About the source for prayer, the manner, the style, the method of prayer, and then the power for it. So let's begin with the source. Um, start with Mark Twain. Mark Twain, as everybody knows, the name is American writer, long dead, 100 years or so, 110 years. And um, he was no friend to Christianity. I'm not sure if, if everybody is aware of this, but he was not a Christian. Couldn't really categorize him as an atheist, but he was very outspoken about his dis gust for organized religion, and he's very witty. He was a very witty guy, so he was sometimes quite clever in his attacks on Christianity. And one of the things he said was, man is the only animal that loves his neighbor as himself and cuts his throat if his theology isn't straight. A little harsh, perhaps. Samuel, his real name was Samuel Clemens, but he's not entirely wrong. There's a hypocritical element in the church, and yet even Mark Twain a man who was adamantly opposed to all things organized, not just Christianity either. He was outspoken about everything from Hinduism to Islam, everything he knew. He, even he, when his brother Orion was dying, admitted and wrote this, Hardened, hopeless, lost and ruined sinner as I am, I have humbled myself and prayed as never man prayed before that the great God might let this cup pass from me and spare my brother. Even... Mark Twain has to acknowledge what every human being, studies are very clear, and if the studies aren't part of your, your, your belief system, then just admit to yourself, every human has prayed in some regard, even if it's just, oh, Lord, let me get to work on time. We all do it. Now, if I'm a skeptic, as I was once upon a time, I'd ask questions and say, but hold on. When I am suffering, when I'm vulnerable, I am bent out of shape and I'm not myself, so of course I'm going to pray, but that's not the real me. It's the circumstances making me pray. And I understand what they're saying. However, the Bible's response to that is, that's actually not true. You are actually, you're not bent out of shape. You're not less of yourself when you pray. You're actually more human when you pray, not less. And people, and I can appreciate that they would disagree, but let me use an example or two. Let's take a very a terrible tragedy, like when we hear about school shootings when somebody's gone into a school and shot up the place. When you hear that, immediately what happens is we're shocked. And the reason you're shocked is because your sense of security has been destroyed. You thought you could drop your children off at school and they'd be safe. And they weren't. It proves they weren't all of a sudden. And then you start immediately trying to rebuild the reservoir of security that you've lost. So you, start, you don't put your kids in school for a few weeks, right? Or um, you wait until the school board has come up with some systems for security. Have police officers there, metal detectors, better screening, any number of things. And then maybe for the next few weeks or months after when they start going back to school, you 
Well, don't just drop them off at the curb. Now you walk them in and you hand them off and you make sure you've seen them get safely into a room, whatever it is. And what happens, of course, over time is this. A few months later, you're going to drop them off at the curb again. And you're going to go back to feeling just as secure as you were before. And the irony is this. Those children and you and I were never more secure the day before the shooting than we were the day of it. They were always vulnerable. The difference is now you have to admit it. And we love the lie that says there's security because without it, how do you live? How do you function in a world where you're just looking, you're scared of your shadow? But the truth is that that tragedy, not that one, I'm not speaking of one specifically, but those sorts of tragedies don't make you less human. They awaken you to your real state. You're vulnerable. You're always vulnerable. And now let me approach the skeptic again, because I remember I was him. And he says, hold on, you're right, we do need a sense of security. Psychologists have proved this, philosophers have proved it. But isn't religion just that? Isn't Christianity just a lie that you accept to make, it, make you feel a little better about the fact that you live in a meaningless world? I would say two things to that. One, that is a boomerang argument. Atheism it could also just as simply be an argument that you create to make yourself feel better in a world where you know you're not the person you should be. You worry that there's a judge and a judgment coming, so you believe a worldview that says there's no judge. It's like going to a restaurant and uh, you, know, you don't want to pay, face the bill. So you just pretend like there's no, there's, no, there's no bill. It's never going to come. The bill will never come, but it will one day. So atheism can just as easily be something we make up. As a famous apologist has said, if Christianity is something that, that people use, it's, a, it's, a, it's comfort to those who are afraid of the dark, then the boomerang answer would be, well, atheism is a comfort to those who are afraid of the light. So it's contradictory. It's a problem philosophically. But I also have this problem. If I was to create a religion to make me feel better, you know what kind I'd choose? One of these three. I'd choose atheism. You know, that's the easiest way. If I worry that I'm going to be judged, what better worldview than to say there's no such thing as a judge? Now I don't have to worry about my bad behavior, how I treat my family, how I work, how I spend my money, how, what I do with my free time. I don't have to. So I'd create that. I'd create a world where there was no judge so that I don't have to worry. Or I do what most Canadians do, which is I come up with this worldview that says there's just this blind benevolence, this universe, this blind creature, this thing that all it wants is for me to be happy. You know, it makes sure the lights change so I get to work on time. It makes me feel better when I've done something wrong. It never judges me. And of course, how could it? It's me. I'm, the, I'm my own judge. I never want to make myself feel bad. So I'd make up that kind of religion. Or I'd make up the kind of religion, like many, every other religion other than Christianity in the world, that says, if I just do these five steps, I'll be safe. Then I can control it. But what I would never do is create a religion that reminds me that I am worthless. I would never create a religion that reminds me that I can't save myself, that I am not just a little vulnerable, but cosmically and spiritually and eternally vulnerable. So why would I ever create a religion like that? The fact is I wouldn't, and no one ever has, because the one that we have in Christianity wasn't created. It was given by God. So with that being said, because our natural condition is vulnerable, that's why we're no more human than when we pray. Because when you pray, you say, I cannot, so you must. And when you realize and acknowledge your real state of vulnerability and weakness and need before God, you are more human, not less. 
And, I mean, even Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, realized that. And it's not surprising then with this view that when they say, teach us to pray, Jesus then puts them and you and I into the place of this man who has a need that he cannot meet. Imagine you're this guy and you have a friend who shows up and you need to feed him because remember ancient custom was you not only feed the person when they come to visit, but when they leave the next day, your job was to set them up on their way. So somebody shows up and the man's need is twofold. One, his personal need. He, if he doesn't provide, he loses a little bit in the honor and shame culture of his time. But he's also got the need of his visitor, his friend. And so, when he goes to his sleeping friend and asks for bread, he is praying out of it his personal need and the need of others. And this is always the place from which you and I are to pray. That's why the first point is the source of prayer. The thing that drives us to pray is our need all the time. Even if you're praying a Thanksgiving prayer, even if you're uh, King Croesus, you know, the Greek god with all the, or king with all this money, it doesn't matter what, or your perfect health, it doesn't matter what you have, every prayer comes from a place of need, of saying, thank you that you've given me what I could never have given myself. Humility and weakness is the foundation of every prayer all the time. And, well, let me ascend there, rather than going too far. But let me say one more thing. If you and I do not pray regularly, this is the hard pastor side. Listen, I understand. It's difficult. It's, time, it's hard to find time. But let's be very clear what Jesus is saying here. If you don't pray, it's because you, are, you either don't perceive or you are indifferent to the needs of yourself and others. Does that sound harsh? It should. Because it's harsh to me. Because if we are constantly in need, if your tank is always on empty, as God says it is, then you must rely on him. And if you're not relying on him, and which none of us do, which is why we need mercy so much, then just, let's just admit before God, Lord, sorry, forgive us that we don't see our need, that we think we can solve our own problems. And that's it. If you're not praying regularly, it's because you don't think you need to be prayed for. It's very simple. It's not harsh. It's just, it's, well, maybe it is. It's the truth. So the source of our prayer is need. It's grounded in our need. But then the manner of prayer. And this is uh, interesting. The, the focus of the parable then turns to this sleeper, this guy who's asleep. And, and we, can, we can ridicule him a little bit, but let's be careful because um, in the ancient world, you had no electricity. And so as a result, you were sleeping far earlier, right? If you've ever been to a cottage where there's no Wi-Fi and all of that, you probably go to bed a little earlier than you normally would. And in this day and age, when it says that the, he goes to his friend's house at midnight, well, he would have been asleep a few hours by then. And not just him, but he's in one room house usually, one, uh, and, and often with his whole family sleeping not just in one room, but sometimes on one bed, in one square. And so, remember, I, I mean, I have six children. If you show up at my house at midnight and start knocking on the door, I, I'm going to be saying, you're going to wake up the baby. Anybody who's had a baby? Is there any greater terror in the world? You could hear there's a nuclear war. You would be less, less worried than the baby waking up. You know, don't wake up the baby. Um, and so he's understandably upset because if you get a phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning, what do you assume that call is about? It's got to be pretty serious. Somebody's hurt, somebody's dead, something, something tragic has happened. Because who would dare call at 4 o'clock in the morning? Only if it's a big issue. So when he's worried, there's a knocking on the door, and then he hears, I need some bread. I mean, I could understand his response a little. Let's not be too harsh on this poor guy. And yet, 
we find that he then grudgingly accepts. And the reason he accepts is because of the man's impudence, according to the ESV. Now, historically, you may have been prone to thinking that this passage, this parable, is about perseverance or persistence in prayer. Keep knocking. Um, there's nothing wrong with persevering in prayer. There's another parable in Luke 18 that talks about the, the woman before the judge, about persistence. But this is not what this is about. We've, I think we've conflated, we've attached, we've, we've put those two parables together, so we've thought it's about perseverance. This, this parable is not about perseverance. And if you, here's two simple reasons why I know that. One, there's no mention that he does it more than once. He doesn't ask many times. It doesn't say he knocks many times. It just says he knocks and he asks. But now you're probably going to look at your Bible and say, Really? Are you sure? <laughs> but he doesn't. And not just that, that word that the ESV translates as impudence is, um, if you look at the different English translations even, you're going to notice it's the word anadia in Greek. And the word in ESV says impudence. In um, your King James, a lot of people still read that, uh, it says uh, importunity. Is that what it is? Importunity, I believe it is. And then in the NIV, it says shameless audacity. Now, that word is only used once in the entire Bible, right there. So when scholars are trying to figure out what does that word mean, anadia, they can't, usually you'd look and see how else it's used in other spots of the Bible. But if, since it's not used in the Bible, what you do is you then go to other, it's extra-biblical sources. You go to, part, to ancient Greek books that use the word, Homer, whatever. And when they do that, you find that every single use of that word is not just literally the word shame and shameful, but it's actually like a rudeness, that the person who's described in this way is a jerk, like he's obnoxious, he's irritating. And the idea here is not one of persistence as much as it is, can you believe this guy would risk waking up my whole household and risk putting his own reputation to shame because he becomes a, a disturber of the peace in the village? For bread? He's got some nerve, shameless audacity. I think the NIV gets it, captures it well for us. And so Jesus is saying, this is how you're supposed to pray with this sort of shamelessness. But it's not just this shamelessness. It's also a confidence as well that he asks. Because you notice afterwards, right after the parable, he says, you know, if you ask, you'll receive, you knock, and it'll be answered, and so on. But those examples are rhetorical. The idea Jesus is trying to get across is saying, if you ask shamelessly, just ask, trust me, the, the shamelessness then comes, and he says, but you ask with the, with the shamelessness and the confidence, really, of a child. A child, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but ask in such a way that you trust that I will give you what you ask for. However, don't come away from this thinking, well, it's simple then. If I pray for it, he's going to give it to me. And if I pray for a shameless amount, if I pray not just, you know, here's the health and wealth gospel, if I pray not just to have my bills paid, but I pray for a jet for the church, get a plane for the church. That's a shameless prayer. He says to pray that way, therefore he's going to give it to me. No, that's not at all what is being said here. And you know it because look at the examples. He says, he, it's actually the very last words when he says, how much more? He's saying this, if you ask in this way, if you ask your dad for a fish, he won't give you a snake. And the idea is this, Think about it. When a child comes to me and asks for food, for nourishment, I then love my child, but I also discern. I think, okay, he's asking me for a fish, meaning he's hungry, he wants nourishment. I then discern and think, okay, he needs something. I don't have a fish, but I'm giving him some toast or whatever. I, in, I take my discernment 
and decide a snake is not what he wants or needs, so I'm not going to give it to him. So when you pray shamelessly to God, he then loves you supremely, so he will answer. But he is ultimately and perfectly discerning, so he's going to say, you know what? I'm going to give you what you would have prayed for if you knew what to pray for. You want a jet? You're not getting a jet. Woe to us if we ever get a jet. We're not getting a jet. Let's be very clear about that. Um, you know, and he's, he's saying what you need to do is to trust God. So when you go shamelessly to God, you do it like a child. And you go to them and you say, um, well, I can't go into the children yet. We're going to say that in a minute. But um, when you go to him in this sort of confidence, you say, I'm going to ask outrageously, knowing that you don't mind me coming to you this way. And we're going to talk about why. And trusting that you're going to give me exactly what I need. If I'm praying for a job, I trust you're going to answer that in the way that makes sense. That you're my father. And that's a confidence. So we're told to come based on our need. But then to come shamelessly, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's not stingy. And then to come confidently. And the, I mentioned, and I'll close this part here. The reason I say he's not stingy is because we've mistakenly understood this. And it's so clear it's not in the Bible. But we do it anyway. We think that Jesus and this sleeping guy are meant to be the same. So you're supposed to see that God responds to our prayers the way the sleeping guy responds. But you've mistaken it. Because it actually doesn't say that this man is a stand-in for God, but that he is a contrast to God. That's why he says, how much more? What he's saying is this. If you're shamelessness at night, if your bombacity will even be enough to take this sinner who's grouchy and selfish, even he will get up and answer your prayer. How much more will your father, who loves you and doesn't sleep, answer that prayer? So don't come away from this thinking God is grudging, and the only way to get him his attention is to wake him up with some sort of rolling on the floor and screaming prayer. It's not what he's saying. It's never, it was never what he was saying. So if the source of our prayer, what we always pray from, is our weakness and our need, and the manner is to pray shamelessly but confidently, then... We are being taught to pray like children, as I said. And that leads us to this last part, the power for prayer. So, have you noticed in this passage, Jesus changes gears. He starts by saying, imagine you have a friend. But it closes by saying, a father. So he switches from this relationship to one of, a ratio of friendship, to one of father and child. It's interesting. He just shifts naturally and we don't even notice it. But what he is trying to say is that you are more than friends with him, if you're a Christian. The reason Greg, on that video we saw at the beginning, couldn't pray is he, was a, he, wasn't, he wasn't even, I don't know what he is. Not a friend. He's not a son, clearly. He doesn't know how to speak to his father. But what we're being told is that we, because we are children, have a certain power before God. And let me explain what I mean by that. In John 1.12, it says, for all who believe was given to them power to become sons, children of God. Now, that power is, of course, the power to, of adoption. But with being a child of God, or like being any adopted child, power comes to you vis-a-vis -vis the parent. You take on that parent's name, their past, their identity, and you become shameless with them. When your children are at my place playing with one of my kids, um, if they want more dessert, or they want to play outside, or they want to watch a movie, or play a video game, your child won't, won't come to me directly usually. They'll go to one of my kids and say, you think we could play more games? You think we could have more dessert? And then one of my kids will come and say, Dad, we want more dessert. Why? Because they're my kids. Because there's that understanding. I said I was, had this discussion with Sarah in the car the other day. Children are given a freedom with their parents 
that even a spouse isn't given sometimes. If, bless, uh, I'm going to reveal my poor husbanding here, but um, if Sarah at four in the morning asks me for a cup of water, my first response is, what's wrong with you? Like, go get water. Like, go with your legs broken. I'm tired here. You know, uh, don't judge me too harshly. I, but, but that's the idea. But if a child comes, I answer, and even, well, I'm, I'm more like the sleeper. I might be grudging and, and groggy, but I answer. And the reason I answer is because I know he can't help himself. I have to. If I don't help him, who will? I have to get him something. And therefore, a child is given a certain degree of license and freedom to be audacious. Nobody else, none of you would probably dare call me at four in the morning. You, you can. I expect it, actually, sometimes. Hopefully not too often. But... Very few people take an awfully big thing for that to happen, but a child, he doesn't care. He'll come anytime, anywhere. If you don't lock your bathroom door, you're never going to be alone. Children don't care. Sorry, is that too graphic? You've had children. You know it's true. And there's that freedom. And the only way we get it is because of Christ. And let me use an example. I heard this from another pastor, so he helped me realize this. There's, think about how the children of God pray to God. In Exodus 33, Moses, well, I'll just read it because I can't do any better than Moses. He says this, Moses said to the Lord, see. here. Hey, if you want me to go, send some. Show me. Tell me what to do. Bring somebody to help me. And don't you dare send me without you coming. Like, that's pretty audacious. And you would think, if the, if the skeptic view of the Old Testament God was accurate, which it's not, but if it was, you would expect him to say, Moses. But what does he say? His response is, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. A child can speak to God like that. And well, one day we'll do more psalms where you'll hear more of that. And let's go even further. And this is where we'll have start the close. Well, start the close. That's 30 more minutes talk for pastors. Um, Abraham. In Genesis 18, Abraham uh, hears that Sodom is going to be destroyed. And you all know the story. If you're a Christian, you know it. But a short note is this. Abraham's worried. And he says, but will you destroy the innocent and the wicked? Like, will you kill them all? What if there's 50? If there's 50 righteous people, will you save Sodom? And God says, okay, for 50, I'll save it. And then he gets a little bit more bold, and Abraham says, well, how about 45? Will you do it for 45? He says, okay. It's like an auction, right? 40. How about 40? And God says, 40. How about 30? And God says, sure, for 30. Abraham presses further. How about 20? Okay, 20. How about 10? Okay. Pretend. If there's 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy it. And Abraham stops. But God doesn't smack Abraham. He allows his children to wrestle with him and to ask these questions and to go deeply. But notice what they're both praying for, their personal need and the national need. It's never just a selfish thing. But 
Have you ever wondered why Abraham stops at 10? Maybe I'm the only one. I read it and think, Moses or Abraham, why not go to five? Why not go to one? And I think it's because, it's not, I'm not blaming Abraham. I think it's because he was logically thinking like most of us and thinking, listen, one, I don't want to press my luck. And two, really, could there, what, how, how is it possible there would be one person so righteous that he would be good enough to save the whole city? It's impossible because even in the audacious prayers of a child, he falls short of the audacious grace of God. Because if he could see what the disciples are about to see and what we have seen, which is that God didn't stop at 10, but he said, even for the sake of one, I will save them all, if there's faith and so on. And the audaciousness, when you see that that is it, that the rights first Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And when you and I begin to see that this is the God we have that said, even for the sake of one, I will save them. And when you see that grace, when you see how much you deserved it, when you see that Jesus had to die for you, and you realize how weak and vulnerable you really are, but then knowing that he chose to die for you, you then begin to see how much you can trust him. So you can make those prayers. I don't know how many times Sarah and I, I remember praying when we first got married, saying we wanted to homeschool our kids, but it made no sense financially. I was a bartender, I think, at the time. Um, it wasn't really an option to have her at home. And I remember saying, well, I was a baby Christian, really, but I said, you know what? Uh, in the Bible, I don't see general prayers. I see specific prayers. So let's figure out how much money do we want? And this sounds very Creflo dollar. Sorry, I shouldn't knock a pastor. Um, I mean, it sounds very health and wealthy, like I'm going to pick a number, but that's what we needed. I said, if we're going to hear God and obey him to homeschool our kids, if, that, if it is you, God, I can't do it. I'm a bartender. I make nothing. I can't do it on my own. And it's not to put, I'm not badgering God. I'm simply saying, if you want me to do this, you must provide. I can't provide. You're asking me to do something I can't do in myself. I don't see it. And within a few months, I got a job offer for $800 more a year than the number we prayed for. Now, I'm not saying this is the way God always works. But what I am saying is, be ridiculous. Ask God. He loves you. You know how much, you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure if I'm like all of you. Do you know how, much, how many dollars I've spent stupidly on my children? I, I love them. I'm not saying you should do it, I, but I want to bless them. I go above and beyond. And if I want to do that, how much more is God just saying, your prayers aren't too big, they're too small. Pray bigger. Bigger, don't just think about growing Redeemer. Think about this region being impacted, by our government being impacted, by the world being impacted. He's God. He can do this. And he wants to help us. Again, understanding what I've said, God is wise. God will give according to his wisdom. He doesn't give just because we want it. But this is the God we have. He loves us. Let's pray crazily, audaciously for him. Not rude. Well, man, he does say to be rude, doesn't he? It's a a, a difficult thing, but let's pray audaciously. That's the best word I could think of. Let's pray.